I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This past April, California police announced they had a suspect for the so-called Golden State Killer. Using genetic data from old crime scene samples, they uploaded the suspect's information into a genealogy website, enabling them to identify his distant relatives and eventually narrow the pool down to find the suspect. This case has raised privacy concerns and uh, also people who think it's great for law enforcement, leading many to wonder about the future of genetic privacy and the Fourth Amendment. Joining us to discuss and illuminate and unpack this important and complicated topic are two of America's leading scholars of privacy law. Erin Murphy is professor of law at NYU Law School. She is a nationally recognized expert in forensic DNA typing and the author of Inside the Cell, The Dark Side of Forensic DNA. Andrea Roth is an assistant professor of law at Berkeley Law School. She previously served as an attorney with the Public Defender Service for the Washington, uh, D.C. Public Defender Service. She's written extensively on the use of DNA in criminal law and procedure. Erin, Andrea, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Erin, let us begin with you. You had a memorable quotation in the press saying that Using DNA matching, once you draw that family tree, every male on the tree is a suspect until they prove their innocence. Take us through how exactly the suspected Golden State killer was caught using uh, his genetic data and why, once the data is plugged into a genetic database, every male on the tree is a suspect until they prove their innocence. Well, from my understanding, essentially what law enforcement did is take a forensic sample they found at the crime scene, uh, which they believe to be the you know genetic signature of the person who committed the crime. And then they did the conventional thing, which is check existing known person databases for a match and nothing came up. Um, I think I've heard that it's now been confirmed they did a traditional familial search, meaning they looked for relatives in those known person databases and nothing came up. And so as their like final step, they decided to use these publicly available databases, um, which are found online. People voluntarily upload their genetic information to these sites. Usually, I think the idea behind them is that because there are so many different platforms offering these kind of recreational genetic links available, if you happen to test on Ancestry and your you know, distant relative tested on 23andMe, you might not find each other simply because you're using different platforms. And so this site, I think, was created to try to solve that problem and say, hey, you can upload your information here and we will essentially allow you to kind of cross-communicate across these uh, divides. And so the law enforcement officers... Um, created essentially a genetic profile akin to what you would get on one of these ancestry or, um, uh, you know, recreational sites using a form of DNA testing that isn't generally used in criminal justice called SNP testing, looking at these single nucleotide polymorphisms or just sort of, um, you know, pieces of the genome um, that change among or that can identify individuals. And they're much more powerful to find relatedness. And so doing that, uh, allowed them to essentially triangulate 
this uh, relative. So they found somebody who matched. I think they went all the way up the family tree. I think I saw somewhere it was to a great grandparent or something of that nature. Then they built out using publicly available sources and genetic information, the family tree from that person. I think many people heard that led them to a relative or someone they believed to be possibly a perpetrator uh, who was in a nursing home. That person turned out not to be a match, but helped build this family tree out even further. And eventually again, using kind of a mix of genetics and information from um, public sources, they landed on what looked like a suspect uh, surreptitiously collected DNA from that person. And that is the individual who is now accused of the crime. Um, So I think one of the, the things that shows you is, you know, I'm not sure I've seen it reported or not, but this person who was the kind of linchpin in the public database may not be even someone, I think it was a third cousin or someone quite remote. And most people, I think if you ask them, who are your third cousins, they have no idea. So this, this person could, could really be someone that the, uh, uh, the, you know, alleged individual doesn't even know is in his family. It's not like your brother or your father who you obviously could identify. It could be that the person that was the ultimate connector is not even someone this guy knew he was related to at all. Thank you very much for that really helpful uh, description. Andrea, uh, one more beat on it, and what can you add to the mechanics of it? So as Aaron described it, using the public DNA database, you have the suspect's great-great or great-grandparents, and then you draw a family tree, and you have people who are alive, and you exclude ones who couldn't have committed the crime because they were overseers, or the person in the nursing home doesn't match the semen sample, I guess it was, that was collected from the original crime scene, but you find out who that person's relatives are, and, you, and then what happens? You, you narrow in on more suspects and then pick up a, a cigarette butt or a, a McDonald's fries thing that they've thrown out outside their house, and that's how you eventually match the sample of the suspect with the uh, semen sample? How, how does it work at the end? Yeah, that's, that's right. So, um, so uh, everything... Aaron said is is obviously how it happened. I would add that uh, you know if if we're talking about the common ancestor being a, a great great grandfather or something, we're talking about. Um, I mean, I think in this case there were thousands of potential people that they had to go through and and think about um, whether they were the right age, uh, gender, whether they could have been in the places at the same time, um, and so obviously one issue with any law enforcement technique, even a you know, going low tech, even a broadcast lookout for a robbery suspect or something is, is it so general that we're bringing in lots and lots of, of people who really shouldn't be under police scrutiny? Um, and so, uh, yeah, the, one of the people who got sucked into the dragnet was a, a 73 year old man in Oregon back in 2017 who was forced to give a DNA sample and it turned out wasn't wasn't the Golden State Killer, um, and uh, so one question is how many, how many other people uh, were subject to scrutiny, uh, whose privacy was invaded, who we, we may never know about. Um, uh, and one other thing to add about how the GEDmatch database, um, which is how they found the Golden State Killer, and also uh, last week um, the guy in Washington State who they now believe um, uh, committed a double homicide. Um, uh, 30 years ago, GEDmatch is, is different because you don't need this robust saliva sample, um, which you would generally need if you wanted to upload to 23andMe or Ancestry.com. So 
That's why they were able to take these, this DNA profile sort of taken from these old, potentially degraded crime scenes, like Aaron said, and instead of having to have a saliva sample, um, as long as they did the testing that allowed them to develop a profile um, that was consistent with the, the SNPs that are tested by these companies, they could just go straight to GEDmatch, uh, which is this free open source site, and, uh, and look for matches and then decide who a likely relative is. Great. Uh, thank you for uh, setting the stage so well. So l- let's begin with the Constitution. Uh, there's one uh, relevant case, Maryland and King, where the question was whether the Fourth Amendment forbids the collection of DNA samples from arrestees without a warrant or individual suspicion. It was a five to four de- decision. Justice Kennedy's opinion for the majority said the collection of DNA swabs from the arrestee was reasonable because um, uh, we didn't have an expectation of privacy in our discarded DNA. And Justice Scalia, in a, in a very memorable dissenting opinion, uh, said that this was like the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution, uh, picking up on <laughs> – and he said that our our founders would have been appalled at the royal intrusion into their mouths. It was a, one of his great lines. So um, – Aaron, uh, what's the relevance of Maryland and King to familial searches? Uh, do, uh, does either the majority opinion or just or the reasoning of Justice Scalia's dissent impose any constitutional restrictions on the ability to use uh, genetic uh, matching of this kind? Well, I think there are really conflicting impulses here in terms of the legal landscape. It's not at all, to my mind, clear. You know, there there's existing doctrine that points one way, but there's also trends and um, just common sense that suggests that that's not the whole picture. So in terms of existing doctrine, you know, I think you could take two things away from King. One is you could say this court is a court that has a majority. Uh, of course, Justice Scalia uh, was in the dissent. Um the majority of the court is very comfortable with DNA testing, even quite broad DNA testing of people who are not convicted, you know, people who've just simply been accused by um, a law enforcement actor. And in that case, there was a little bit of a side issue about whether Maryland's particular law, which involved, um, which required a probable cause finding by a judge before the Um, DNA sample from an arrested person could be taken, whether that was determinative or not. But I think a lot of people reading tea leaves have um, been unsure whether that was critical. And of course, that's important because the difference between a law enforcement officer deciding I'm going to arrest you and a court of law upholding that as legally founded can be quite pronounced in terms of the power of the police. Um, and so if, uh, if, if it's not required that there be some judicial finding of probable cause, it puts you in a kind of different area in terms of the scope of the police power. But putting that aside, you know, if, if part of what the writing on the wall of King is, is that this is a court that doesn't think that genetic testing is a big deal, that the government having people's genomes is a big deal, that suggests that similarly in a case like this or in a familial search case of a more ordinary kind, they're also not going to think it's a big deal. Um, I think on the other side, though, there are signs that this court has begun to to show a greater willingness to reconsider existing doctrine in light of the kind of changes that technology brings. You know, so we've had now a couple of cases where existing doctrine seems pretty clearly to say there's not going to be a Fourth Amendment problem here because you knowingly expose information to the public. And under conventional doctrine, when you knowingly expose information to the public, you lose kind of all claim to a Fourth Amendment violation when the police make observations. And um, 
You see that in a case involving a GPS tracker that was put on a car. Normally, existing doctrine would suggest that's fine. You don't have to have, you know, there's no Fourth Amendment issue at all because where you drive in public can be seen by anyone. But the court in that case came out and said, actually, you know, there's a real difference between observing a car for a couple days and observing a car for weeks on end using a technological aid. Um, you see it again in the cell phone cases where normally you can search a person incident to arrest, including you can do things like invasive as body searches or, you know, intimate searches. Um, but there the court said, wow, you know, it's really different when you arrest someone to search their purse or search their pockets than to search a cell phone, which is almost like a, searching a home. It's got so much valuable private information. There's now a case before the court where the question is whether the Supreme Court is going to decide whether um, the police can get access to sort of historical cell site information that that the, the location of your cell phone over long periods of time um, without kind of added process. And again, conventional doctrine says, hey, if you share with AT&T or Google or whomever uh, where your location is via your cell phone, then police can access that because you shared it with a third person. And I think a lot of people think the court's going to say that's not the case. And so I could see a world in which when we look at genetic information and we look at DNA, a court would stop and say, we have these conventional doctrines about, say, abandonment, whatever you abandon is fair game for police to collect, or about you know expectations of privacy when you upload information onto a website, et cetera. But those are really doctrines that apply for a different kind of information. You know, there's not, this is uh, different in kind in terms of both the privacy implications for the individual in terms of what's contained in their genome and the privacy implications for their relatives who haven't made any decision to expose anything at all. So it's hard to, it's hard to know how a court would decide this. Uh, you know, I'll say just briefly that if, I think there's a lot of people in the country that see these cases and feel relief that these people are caught. It doesn't seem like anything that could affect them adversely. And part of that, I think, is a false sense of security about not being the target of an investigation as long as they didn't do anything wrong. But as Andrea alluded to, we don't know how many people's genetic information was collected or put in a database without their knowing it. If this man hadn't matched, then my guess is they would have taken his DNA and put it in a DNA database in case they needed it for the future. But we never would have heard anything about it because it was collected surreptitiously. We only even heard about Oregon because they needed or got a warrant to do that. Um, so what we don't know is very meaningful. And if, if you're against a universal genetic database, if, if you're a person who thinks, well, I don't think everyone at birth or when they turn 18 should have to give their DNA to the government to keep in a criminal justice database, then you really should be against a search like this because it is essentially a lousy version of a universal database. Once these you know, recreational genetic sites have enough people in, and they really are there or close to it, they essentially do have everyone's DNA. It's just a lousy version that doesn't pinpoint that person. Uh, and so I think you know it's important to remember that what's out there now, if we don't view it as something that deserves privacy, is essentially uh, a rule that would say, whatever's in your genome or your children's genomes or your children's children's genomes is fair game for police so long as a relative you've never even heard of, you know, made a decision to upload it to a site. And that seems like a pretty daunting prospect and a, and a dramatic departure from what the founder's idea of the relationship between the police and the people should be. Powerful uh, statement. So Andrea, um, help us, uh, give us your sense of what the Fourth Amendment argument against uh, this genetic surveillance might be. Aaron says that the court uh, is undecided about whether 
to strike different rules about uh, searches that can reveal a lot of information about us. And as it's been described to me, here's one uh, scenario. The police could do a DNA test, tell someone's race, whether they tested positive for AIDS. They could look for sickle cell anemia or diabetes. If they've got a suspect and who has AIDS and sickle cell anemia and is African-American and needs insulin, he, he lives in Vermont, there are not a lot of African-Americans in the area, you could, the police could go to a pharmacy, run license, license plates of the guys uh, who are getting insulin, make a surreptitious collection of their DNA if they go to McDonald's, and then catch them. Would that be a Fourth Amendment violation? And if you were making the Fourth Amendment argument, how would it, what would it sound like? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think... Uh I think it's really up in the air uh, based on existing doctrine, uh, but I think that that there would be a there would be a huge backlash. Um, I, I think against a, a doctrine that just uh, says that there's absolutely no problem with that. I think the problem is that we're reaching this breaking point where, I mean, the the, the funny thing about uh, Justice Scalia's dissent in King was that he was obsessed with the physical trespass into the body. That, that just that cheek swab, like James Madison would not allow his cheek to be swabbed by a, a British <laughs> soldier or whatever. And, um, and it, it seems to me, and I think probably to most people, um, that the issue isn't so much the cheek swab. The issue should be, if they, if they fully understood the implications of DNA, the privacy issues here, and ultimately the Fourth Amendment issues, would be... Uh, the concern about the government having your full genome and the likelihood of abuse. Uh, I know that when, you know, there's a, the statutes are written such that it's a misdemeanor to abuse genetic information, but that's, um, uh, we know that that uh, government abuses information sometimes when they have it. Um, second, that uh, they could use DNA even if all they had was your forensic profile that didn't necessarily um, show your likelihood of having sickle cell anemia, um, they could uh, determine your locations the same way that they do with cell tower information uh, or even fingerprints or license plate readers. Um, and then there's also the concern of being falsely accused of a crime. I, I can't tell you how many of my friends who've, who've sent their DNA to Ancestry.com say, well, I'm not planning to murder someone, so I think I'm okay, uh, like Aaron was saying. And, and, and the answer is, well, number one, uh, somebody might think that you murdered someone or at least that you left your DNA at a crime scene. Um, and now we have a world where DNA is sort of a, a victim of its own success. We're able to detect very small quantities of DNA, like you said, off of a little coffee cup, um, at your local coffee shop or whatever, um, uh, or even skin cells that you leave on an armchair at the station house or, or whatnot. Um, and, uh, and the mere, f or when you brush up against, there's something called DNA transfer, where if you brush up against somebody on the subway or you shake hands with someone and uh, you're a type of person called a shedder who tends to shed their DNA easily, and then that person goes to a crime scene and commits a robbery or whatnot, um, your DNA might be there. And so we're in a world where the mere presence of DNA um, uh, might make someone look very guilty when in fact they're not. Um, so, uh, so circling back to the Fourth Amendment, the other thing I would say about Marilyn V. King is that the majority uh, did a clever move that's eventually going to have to break down because they tried to say that the reason that arrestee databases were legal was in part because this database 
uh, of Maryland's was primarily being used simply to identify arrestees once they're arrested to make sure that they are who they say they are. Basically, it's a higher-tech version of fingerprints. Um, and that's literally what the majority hung its hat on in arguing that this was, in, in, in stating that this was legal. But everybody knows that the real reason these databases are so important is the crime-solving power of them. And, and that's what the, the four dissenters pointed out was, give me a break. This is totally a crime-solving measure. This is not an identification measure primarily. And so I think we're going to find um, that once uh, people who are privileged and, uh, and wealthy um, uh, get caught up in this genetic dragnet, which is starting to happen with these uh, genealogy databases especially, uh, we're going to see a much more robust debate about the privacy implications. Um, it's it's going to be a lot different when a senator's son gets falsely accused of a crime <laughs> as compared to somebody who's got some prior offenses, who is a uh, you know low-income minority person in a in a database somewhere. Uh, yeah, can't wait for your thoughts, Aaron, but um, Andrea just gave two really powerful possibilities, false accusations and also using DNA tracking to track your location in a kind of dragnet way. And to respond to that, but, but, but also uh, respond to w- when it works, as it did in the Golden State Killer case, and you just find a really serious criminal but don't invade other people's privacy, is there a case there that there's no Fourth Amendment violation and it's uh, fine? Well, just to make clear, you know, I don't think we know whose privacy has or hasn't been invaded. I mean, we certainly know there was one warrant that got a man's DNA that issued entirely on the basis of inferences about what his DNA, DNA profile was that was drawn that were drawn from, you know, essentially a phishing expedition in an online database. That that's the kind of thing I think Madison would not favor, right? Like yeah. the idea that in our constitution, you know, it very strongly says that suspicion is the basis of police invasion into people's lives. We construct a state that cannot engage in the kind of um, random and suspicionless searches that we found to be oppressive and the cause of the revolution. And so, you know, the fact that the warrant itself issues because some third cousin somewhere uh, has a profile that resembles in some way this crime scene sample, to me itself, you know, kind of proves that point, that 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 privacy was invaded. And then we don't know, again, how many we didn't hear about. But, um, you know, I think it, no one would deny that it is incredibly difficult when a, you know, serial rapist or murderer is caught to ask hard questions about the technique that was used to apprehend them. It's It's very tangible to see the consequences of a good investigation and the consequences of a bad investigation aren't always apparent. I mean, even before this case, there was another high profile misfire involving a man in Louisiana who uh, police officers used the an Ancestry.com related database, similarly one that was open and available. And uh, they really thought they had their guy because in addition to the genetic similarity, they found uh, his name matched the name of a supposed assailant. He had the right identification, the physical description of the assailant. That was a rape and murder case as well. He also, um, oddly enough, he'd grown up in the South and he was living in the South, but he had connections to Idaho where the crime had occurred, which was itself kind of an unusual fact. Uh, he had been a, a maker of horror films, including one that had a sort of similarity to the crime. There were all these really powerful indicators. They had their man. 
And, you know, when they went and executed the warrant, uh, three weeks after testing him, it turned out that he was not, in fact, a match. And I think by now they have cleared his family out to six degrees of relatives. But, you know, again, I think that's that's a very that's a very high profile or should be a high profile case of of exactly what the founders feared, which is you become a suspect in it. I mean, imagine if you're a teacher or a doctor or someone in a sensitive position uh, and now you're all of a sudden under suspicion for a murder rape or you started dating someone who you really like a lot. And now you have to tell them, oh, by the way, they think I committed a, a double homicide. So those kind of things can have profound implications on people's lives. And it's it's the reason why we like to operate in a suspicion based mode before you really drag someone's name through the mud or before you, you know, implicate an entire family in a heinous crime, uh, we need to have some suspicion. And the genetics alone, um, when they're imprecise, you know, they're not, it's not saying this is the guy. This is genetics that are just saying, you know, maybe somewhere in this tree at best, uh, I think is, is a bit um, unnerving. And, and let me add too, there's absolutely nothing about what happened in this case that couldn't be used in a much more expansive way. You know, right now, for resource reasons, it's unlikely that the run-of-the-mill case will involve this kind of um, technique. But certainly down the road, when the type of testing they did, maybe the standard, the SNP testing is the standard, when you have rapid typing enabled for SNPs, um, there's really no reason why we wouldn't see this kind of intrusive, suspicionless, fishing expedition type of investigation occur for much lower levels of crimes. Uh, for crimes that we might fear have political dimensions, whether it's, you know, drug type related offenses that we think are, um, you know, that that were disproportionately enforced against uh, minorities or people of color, whether it's sex offenses that we think are involve, um, you know, perspectives about what's deviant sexual behavior and so forth, whether it's, you know, um, even offenses that we uh, basically any offense that we think like a protest related offenses, you know, the, the kind of resisting arrest or, um, you know, protest, protesting political protests, protesters who get arrested and so forth, those kind of things that we feel might be more politically motivated. Um, and, and I, and even in, in an ordinary investigation, there's really nothing about what they did that couldn't be used to find witnesses. For instance, if a crime occurs, you know, someone uh, is, you know, murdered or assaulted or something in a bar, there's nothing about what they did that suggests that if they really want to find some eyewitnesses, they can't just collect all the DNA there and type it and try to figure out who it belongs to. So even if it wasn't the actual perpetrator, they could come knock on your door and say, we think you were in this bar. You know, did you happen to see anything that happened there? What have you? And again, in theory, everyone says, well, that's not a big deal. Who cares? But in reality, you start to realize, well, this is the kind of thing that entangles me in something I didn't want to be entangled in. Or now I'm going to have to explain why I was in a location that nobody knew I was in. Or now, you know, someone's discovered something about a misattribution of parentage that was a hidden family secret I intended to keep secret. And, it, you know, there's a lot of our personal lives that, um, even if they don't involve wrongdoing, we wouldn't want exposed to police. We wouldn't want police to uh, go rifling through. I, I say that jokingly sometimes with my students. I stole this from a, um, another faculty member. On the first day of criminal procedure, you say to your students, you know, how important is privacy? And you have a little debate. And then you say, okay, well, since, you know, privacy is not that important, everyone dump their bags, your book bags on the table right now. I want to see everything in your, your book bag. And, you know, very few students have anything actually contraband. But people keep private, they want to keep uh, space private from the kind of prying eyes of others. And that 
usually causes a gut reaction of like, I don't want to show you that. And it's partly because you don't want to begin a series of, why do you have that? Why don't you have this? And I think that's the foundation of this suspicion-based requirement for investigations that's really upset and upended by the kind of genetic investigation we're seeing here. Wow, those are, you gave many powerful examples of misuse, including the idea that all of us will be genetically surveilled in public and have our locations identified and be forced to be witnesses. You mentioned misattribution of parentage. You could have a family tree where the social father or the father of public record turns out not to be the biological father and uh, the, the, the family would be surprised uh, as a result. And then you gave this example of disproportionate enforcement of low-level drug laws against people of color. And it is uh, a stark fact of American life that African Americans are more likely to be represented in these arrestee databases than are uh, uh, white, white people. And therefore, if the police wanted to go on a dragnet to arrest uh, low-level drug offenders or political protesters, um, their, the ancestors of the suspects would be more likely to be in the database than uh, if they were African American than white. Um, Andrea, would that raise uh, equal protection uh, problems under the Constitution? And should we be concerned about uh, genetic uh, discrimination? Uh, so no and yes. <laughs> that was a multi-part <laughs> question. Doctrine, I mean, equal protection doctrine has been pretty much gutted. You have to show, you know, discriminatory intent. And, you know, here the reason folks are in the database, presume, you know, according to the government, is uh, they've been arrested for a crime. We need to identify them. There's nothing remote. It's all race neutral. Um, and, and that's why it's, it's tempting um, to, and I think this is, might be in one of the areas where Aaron and I disagree a bit. It's, um, I, I think that moving towards either a universal database or a database that includes a randomly selected group of uh, people in the United States, whether or not they've been arrested for a crime, is the way to go if we want to cut against the racial disparities in genetic surveillance. Now, I know Aaron will say that's not going to change things if, if uh, you know, at some point racial bias is going to seep back into it. You know, which, which crime scenes are we collecting DNA from, et cetera. Um, but I think this ship has sailed. I think that because there is, um, because DNA is so freely available from either abandoned, quote, abandoned or consensually given DNA, and, and because of the millions of people who are already in these so-called offender databases, I feel like we really need to move towards a much more egalitarian selection for who's going to be in the databases and see what, and see what happens. Um, and that's why the, the genealogy stuff doesn't, doesn't concern me so much in terms of a leap into the future so long as it's subject to the same safeguards as the offender databases. And so um, I think one just big thing to add to this discussion is even if the Fourth Amendment and equal protection don't really get us very far, we should be thinking of legislative solutions in the same way that we have a Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act um, to deal with the insurance companies. You know, we should be thinking about, you know, abandoned DNA. Maybe it's not covered under the Fourth Amendment, but maybe we should pass a statute that says that police can't create a profile from biological material uh, that has been taken um, from someone's so-called abandoned DNA without consent or probable cause. Um, eventually, they would have gotten probable cause for this Golden State killer, 
Um, you know, and I know good policy isn't made in the wake of finding a serial killer. <laughs> I totally or nine eleven for that matter. I mean, it's. But um, another example of uh, statutory fixes would be, you know, for for the genealogy stuff, we could subject those searches to the same safeguards that um, familial searching and offender databases currently are. So, for example, in California, then there's a memorandum of understanding between the California DOJ and law enforcement agencies saying, before you engage in familial searching, first of all, you can't do it in arrestee databases. It has to be in, in uh, those convicted of crimes. But before you do it, it has to be a serious unsolved crime. Uh, it, you have to look for enough genetic locations that it, this isn't a huge fishing expedition. Um, you have to uh, uh, do confirmation through something called YSTR typing to make sure that the person is in the same uh, paternal line uh, that you're looking for. Um, things like that that we could that could be legislative fixes, even if we aren't going to get what. Uh, privacy advocates aren't going to get what they want from uh, from constitutional doctrine. Thank you so much for that. Um, Aaron, Andrea says that a universal database would be fairer than a selective one and that with proper legislative restrictions, then privacy might be protected. And uh, Professor Akhil Amar uh, made a similar uh, argument in 2002, a search for justice in our genes, where he said a universal database could convict the guilty and exonerate the innocent, and he proposed a series of legislative regulations, including uh, limiting testing to so-called junk DNA, allowing the government to search the database only for important needs and uh, severe penalties for misuse. So uh, what about that uh, notion by uh, Andrea and Akil that a universal database properly regulated might uh, identify the guilty and exonerate the innocent? Yeah, I, you know, Andrea's right. It's an area we disagree. I, you know, I think I have a few responses. The first is that you know, I, I don't think we should, I, I agree that the ship has sailed on our genetic privacy in the sense that um, there are too many good uses of our genome to keep it kind of forever under lock and key hidden away. Uh, and we're going to want to be able to do things like medical testing, you know, for geno genetic medical testing or clinical testing or engage in recreational genetics, or, or we're going to want to be able to, um, have our genetic information tested and feel secure about it being constrained for the purpose that we're testing it. And that is to me the kind of fundamental flaw in some of this thinking, which is we shouldn't, this isn't a binary. We shouldn't have to say, well, you know, either you can do recreational genetics or you can have privacy. You know, either you can find out if you have the breast cancer gene or you can have privacy. You can't have both. And I think we can totally have both. I think we have seen Europe does a much better job uh, of balancing some of the concerns here. They can recognize the need to collect DNA, but also the human right to have it destroyed after a certain period of time. You know, the idea that once you give up your genetic information, it's gone forever, uh, as opposed to it might be something that you kind of forfeit some privacy in during a period in which you've been criminally active, but at the end of that period, the you know profile and the sample should be destroyed. That's not something that's you know unthinkable. It's actually happening in other places. Um, similarly, the idea that we would say information that's created for one reason, created for health reasons, doesn't have to be accessible and transparent for criminal justice purposes. Again, I feel like we've gotten to this place in our society where because there are so many challenges to our privacy, we've kind of thrown up our hands and said, you know, everything has to be transparent. But 
we just saw, you know, again in Europe, the privacy uh, restrictions go into place about behavior on the internet. And it shows there are models that we could look to and there are steps that could be taken legislatively that would allow people to have uh, have it both ways, have genetic privacy while also engaging in the kind of genetic testing that they're interested in for limited and precise reasons. And I think that is really the true approach that's in keeping with the founder's vision of the police power and with our national commitments to uh, kind of restraint in policing. I mean, that that is the way in which we as a nation have conceptualized policing up until uh, quite recently. And so, you know, as to a universal database specifically, you know, Andrea, I think, anticipated my response, which is policing and the decision of what gets policed and how it's policed has far more impact on um, the dis- sort of discriminatory effects of policing than would, um, uh, you know, the, the collection of DNA or universal database. I mean, the, the reality is right now, if they can engage in the kind of testing that was done in the, the, um, the cases that we've been talking about, we have, like I said, we already have essentially a universal database. It's just a bad one. And so, I, again, don't think that the answer is, well, let's just make everything genetically transparent. That will make things fairer. It's not fair. For people who want to have privacy and who've done nothing to forfeit that privacy, we're basically saying you no longer get to have privacy. That's not fair. That's a total realignment of the relationship between the state and the individual. Instead, I think we should say, how do we strike the balance between law enforcement and privacy in other areas that are kind of fundamental or to our sense of you know, individual autonomy or what have you. And and that's what I think the court has been struggling with in the cases I talked about earlier with the GPS tracker and the cell phones. It's what you see the court upholding as a value when it comes to something like the physical home. The court has been very uh, protective of the physical home, including in yesterday's case about the curtilage. And I think we can easily return to a time when, when the kind of... Um, preventative, everyone's a suspect and less proven otherwise model was not the model. And the model instead was innocent until proven guilty. And and I kind of refuse to let that go. I refuse to say, oh yeah, well, we're now all going to be guilty until proven innocent. So we should just all give the government our entire genetic code and and cross our fingers. It won't be abused or exploited. And, And let me just add, we're in a very politically volatile time right now. We're in a time when people not only talk about political enemies in the kind of language we haven't seen in the uh, liberal democracy, but also, you know, are engaging in, in talk of that, that veers very close to what would be the kind of flames of eugenics. And I don't mean to sound too alarmist, but I do think that um, when you have, you know, New York Times journalists writing books about, in, you know, the genetic inferiority of certain races, when you have language used to discuss immigrants, that sounds incredibly um, you know, kind of genetically determinant, like they're inferior or they're animals or, um, you know, likening people to, to unevolved creatures, et cetera. It's really not so hard, I think, in this day and age to imagine the weaponization of genetic information by the state, by the government to suppress or support, um, you know, policies that we would find abhorrent. And so I would hope we would find abhorrent. And so, uh, you know, I I don't think the solution would be let's just let the government have everyone's genetic information. To me, the solution is let's try to get a functioning legislature that can recognize why limitations should be placed on what is essentially the keys to the kingdom. 
Wow. Uh, weaponing, weaponization of genetic information is a powerful uh, d- dystopian vision. And Andrea, <laughs> let's think... That's my think, specialty. <laughs> it's, that's all of us in the privacy field are, are to, to try to scare the daylights out of people. And, uh, and on, Andrea, let's think in practice about how a legislative restriction might pass. Uh, for better or for worse, Congress seems unable to pass comprehensive privacy <laughs> legislation. It can't even pass the geolocational... It can't pass any location, uh, legislation. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's true. It's a very polarized time. And even things that have bipartisan support like geolocational privacy acts can't be passed. However, when there are particular scandals, often involving celebrities, then you can have state laws and uh, sectoral laws. So give us the scenario for how genetic information in a 23andMe private database might be misused in a way that could lead to regulation, and what kind of regulation might that be? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is sort of um, the us versus them thing. I, I, I recognize that it seems like the answer shouldn't be to give genetic privacy over to um, Donald Trump. Uh, I, I think the issue is that already, you know, millions and millions of Americans um, have done that against their will. And uh, if we had a random selection of senators' sons who had to do the same thing, we would just have a much more robust discussion of privacy in the same way that if we actually, um, you know, reinstituted the draft, um, we would have a much uh, and, uh, you know, the, the people who are actually serving overseas um, look much more demographically and socioeconomically diverse. We would be uh, having a different conversation about what's going on um, militarily. And so uh, I guess I would add two more things on, you know, first of all, California. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, California has an Electronic Data Privacy Act um, that requires... Uh, a warrant for certain information rather than just a subpoena. Um, I think if you had a falsely accused uh, person with some political capital um, who's falsely accused through one of these genealogy websites, that would be a good in for some legislative solutions. And, you know, Curtis Rogers, the the founder of GEDmatch, just said last week that he's been overwhelmed with requests since the Golden State Killer, like uh, the Parabon Nano Labs, the new company that's um, helping law enforcement do these searches, they just sent 100 crime scene samples, and apparently 20 of them uh, showed some type of close genetic match. So maybe one of those 20 is going to be uh, to somebody who can make an argument that it was a false accusation, or um, at some point when the floodgates open, and people get freaked out enough, um, you know, maybe the the political will will be there. Um, one other thing to add to this that we haven't already talked about is consent and how the government, we're going to, if we're going to have these solutions, we're going to have to be really wary of the government's use of consent to justify um, putting more and more people's DNA in the databases. So, for example, down in Orange County, there's 150,000 people in this database that's run by the district attorney's office in Orange County. Um, those people are there because they have allegedly consented to be there, not because they have to give a DNA database by a D- DNA sample by law. And it's because the district attorney's office has said, "We'll give you, we'll dismiss your case, or we'll give you a lenient, a more lenient plea if uh, if you give us your DNA." 
Um, and so somebody who walks a dog off leash, for example, now has to give a DNA sample to get their case dismissed. Um, you could imagine next week uh, a state saying, if you want a driver's license, you have to give a DNA sample. Just like in California, you have to give your fingerprint, uh, uh, your fingerprints to get a driver's license. So um, even if we have these fixes in, in Fourth Amendment law or, or legislative fixes, if the government can just simply get around it by saying that it's consensual, uh, then that's going to be a problem. So we, we need to bake that into the law, that, that, uh, um, that something that we should be entitled to anyway, like a driver's license, um, they can't hold it, uh, they can't blackmail you um, and force you to give you DNA, give your DNA. Um, and that, that should be something that's baked into the law if we care about it. Uh, the consent is an important uh, notion, and the use of DNA for purposes other than that which is which it was surrendered might indeed, as you suggest, raise serious legal issues. Um, Aaron, obviously, it's good that the alleged Golden State killer was caught. In, as you think about the future, would you want the use of uh, genetic surveillance in ways that could be used to catch serious killers but not to invade the privacy of innocent people? Or do you think the whole technique is just so dangerous that it shouldn't be allowed? No, no. I mean, I, I think it, it definitely, DNA has been an incredibly powerful and positive tool in criminal justice, you know, both to identify and convict people and also to exonerate people we've seen. So I'm absolutely not someone who thinks there's no role for genetics. I'm just an advocate of a thoughtful and uh, kind of principled approach consistent with our, you know, values as a, as a population. So, you know, or as a nation. So one thing I would say, you know, I think that, um, you know, what you asked Andrea, what, what would um, change the kind of public sentiment? And, and I agree a hundred percent, you know, a high profile political uh, kind of issue could could do that. You know, I think another problem that DNA has right now is that it's still in the very, very earliest stages. You know, it only is quite recently that whole genome sequencing has become, uh, you know, cheap enough to be broadly available to researchers. We're at the earliest, earliest phases of knowledge about what secrets the genome holds. And there's dispute about what will even be found there. And so, you know, if you ask most people on the street, what is genetics good for? They'll probably tell you some version of, oh, it's to tell me if my baby has Down syndrome or, oh, it's to exonerate people and uh, convict them or, oh, uh, it's like the Bicra gene, something about breast cancer. That's about what people think genetics is good for. They're not paying attention to the research that's ongoing about what behavioral clues there might be, violence or addiction, predispositions. They're not paying attention to the research on mental illness, uh, you know, predispositions or sexual deviance of some kinds or IQ or other habits that society might deem um, pertinent or interesting for insurance purposes or employment purposes or uh, parenting purposes or any number of things that society has an interest in seeing done and done well. And so once I think what we understand better, what the genome tells us about a person or a person's family line or what it might be interpreted to tell us, then perhaps people will have a stronger sense that this is important stuff. You know, most people say something like, well, like Andrea said, you know, I didn't, I'm not going to do any crime. So what do I care if the government is fishing around in my genome? But if you said back to them, oh, well, while they're fishing around, they're also going to have on record the average IQ of your family, whether you guys are generally 
prone to addiction or not, whether you're prone to violence or not, whether you're prone to mental illness or not, uh, what kind of sexual predispositions you might have. Then people might start raising their eyebrows and saying, wait, why does the government need that? Are insurers going to have that? Are employers going to have that? You know, our perspective, uh, if I'm adopting someone, or the state going to have it? So once we know better what the genome holds, then perhaps the idea that the government has our genome or our genetic information may, might seem more important. I just worry that by then the cat will be out of the bag, that if we let go of all of our privacy before we know exactly what we're trying to protect, um, it will be very hard to claw it back you know, later on. And, and I do think, you know, you, you, there was a case uh, in my book, um, I talk about the case in Texas where families, you know, right now we do newborn um, genetic sampling because there's a handful of diseases, genetic diseases that you can identify very early and that there are treatments for, but if left untreated can be, you know, debilitating or even fatal for the infant. And so we have a wonderful public health program, which we should, that does pretty much presumptive DNA testing of infants at birth to identify these diseases, as you would hope uh, a nation like ours would do. And in Texas, though, they found out that they were taking those newborn samples and they were using the discarded samples for research purposes, including criminal justice research. And a collection of parents were very angry about that. And the result was first a law in Texas and then a law in the nation about how those samples should be handled. And I don't think either of those laws were perfect fixes, don't get me wrong, but I think it is indicative of a deeper sense that people do feel genetic privacy is important. And when they learn that their genome is being used in ways they didn't anticipate, they feel a personal sense of invasion and intrusion. It's also a sign that legislation can be a way of safeguarding both public policy goals, like ensuring healthy newborns, while also um, you know, addressing concerns like the forfeiting of genetic privacy. And again, I think the danger here is that if that backlash happens, maybe we're going to lose some of the valuable things about these databases because people will be so incensed at the misuse that they will be kind of incapable of separating out careful and thoughtful uses of DNA from reckless and um, you know, uh, invasive uses of DNA. And I think that would be a real loss for the criminal justice system. So a thoughtful approach, I think, would have, would recognize a DNA sample is different from a DNA profile. Certain kinds of DNA testing are more invasive than others. The length of a retention of a sample or retention of a profile should be something of discussion. The fact that a DNA profile might give you, you know, incidental findings, you know, information apart from just identity, is something that needs to be addressed directly, the implications for family members who are law-abiding needs to be addressed, the racial justice issues need to be addressed. There's a lot of issues on the table. And the idea that we can't discuss those, it has to boil down to, don't you want to convict killers? Um, I think really, you know, is unfortunate given the fact that I think we can have a, our cake and eat it too a little bit. Thank you very much for that and for those uh, great suggestions for areas that should be focused on in the coming debate. Andrea, the last word is to you. If you were advising the FBI or Congress or state legislatures or the Supreme Court about what kind of restrictions to put on genetic surveillance in order to maintain its benefits and avoid its dangers, what would your list include? I think they would include a lot of what is already included for CODIS, um, the Sunder database, but I guess, if you know, if I if I were king of the world or head of the FBI, <laughs> um, we should be either uh, adding a random sample of um, people who are not 
arrested for a criminal offense into our databases or sh- we should be dialing back the databases to only include people who are convicted of a serious crime. Um, and uh, and after that, we should make sure that there aren't uh, searches of these databases uh, unless there are certain criteria. It's a serious unsolved crime. You've used other methods. The search is, is uh, a high enough stringency that you're not putting thousands. It's not a fishing expedition. Um, require a uh, probable cause um, before you develop a profile from abandoned DNA. Um, uh, have limits on the use of consent uh, to get genetic information from people. Require YSTR confirmation of familial hits. Um, that would be an initial list. And then also just to double down on what Aaron was saying, this idea that you're soft on crime because you don't want to expand databases, it's sort of like, you know, if if we wanted to solve more crimes, we could also bust down everybody's door. We could put every man in the United States between the ages of 18 and 60 in the database because they commit most of the crimes. I mean, that, and, and uh, uh, you know, Put Rand Paul in there. You know, it's, at some point, there has to be a limit to that logic, or we are no longer America. <laughs> and, uh, and and so we have to change the narrative so that it doesn't look soft on crime to put those reasonable limits on. Thank you so much, Andrea Roth and Aaron Murphy, for a rigorous, nuanced. Uh, scary, but also thought-provoking <laughs> discussion of one of the most important uh, privacy issues of our time, genetic surveillance. Andrea, Aaron, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Ugana Etze. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for Select America's town hall programs. There's credit for in-person events and on-demand courses. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. And finally, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, support, and passion of people around the country who are inspired by our incredibly important nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.